Jimmy are going out tonight. Wear something cute, okay? You always do what Jennifer tells you to do. It's just that I like the same things that she likes. Hey, Jennifer. You look really pretty. Why don't you just come by my place? Well, this is random. This isn't really your house, is it? We can play mommy and daddy. No way. We always share your bed when we have slumber parties. Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil. Not high school evil. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is, at least in part, the trailer to Jennifer's Body, the 2009 film from Fox Atomic and Dune Entertainment, directed by Karen Kusamo and written by Diablo Cody, starring Megan Fox, Amanda Seyfried, and Adam Brody. And Jennifer's Body is the topic of today's conversation on JNL Video. Welcome to JNL Video, the podcast where two movie buffs get nostalgic for the good old days of renting videotapes with scary pictures on the boxes and talking about films both great and terrible. I'm James Machado, and I'm joined by my good friend, Lowry Woodall. This is the JNL Video Podcast. And I'm just glad to be upgraded to good friend. <laughs> I'm going to change that. Got to get rid of that. Uh, all right. By my associate. <laughs> by my vague acquaintance. <laughs> A man I just met. <laughs> Who I like a little bit. <laughs> Give it time. <laughs> it'll grow. We'll cultivate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll, yeah. it'll, it'll blossom. It'll blossom. If it's like any of my other relationships, it'll, it'll explode. It'll terminate eventually. <laughs> it'll implode. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so today we're talking about Jennifer's body. Um, and uh, I got to say, a pretty good film, a film that I think is actually better than it was given credit for when it w originally came out in theaters. You know, I, I was telling you earlier when we were watching it, I'm like tabula rasa on this film. Like I have no, I had no experience. I'd never seen it before. I think at the time when it came out, it just either I didn't notice it. And then the, re the, the reception, the, the critical reception of it was so bad that I just didn't bother to to dig into it and watch it at all. Um, and I think that's a shame. Like I having watched it, like it's a good movie. Like it was fun to watch. It was fun. It was, it was scary and there was gore and violence and it was well shot and it was funny. It was yeah. all of the things that you kind of want a decent horror movie to be like, it was scary and funny. And um, the relationship between the leads and the, the construct of the story. I mean, is it high art? Well, no. Is is any uh, horror movie, though, really? Uh, I mean, isn't isn't kind of the, the whole conceit that you're, you're um, enjoying something that is, by its very nature, meant to be slightly lowbrow? Yeah, I guess that's true. I think that they're probably, you know, there are probably horror movies that, paint themselves as being high art and then they tend not to be great horror movies. Right. I'm looking at you dead ringers. 
<laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I think if we if we had to take the uh, the advice of every director who thought they had just made the next great film, uh, there would be an awfully lot uh, more great films out there than there actually are. You know? <laughs> That's and probably true. No, no one wants to admit to themselves that they just made a terrible movie. Even Yui Bowl, uh, somewhere inside <laughs> himself, thinks that he's made a great movie. Uh, when he's he, wrong. When he is clearly physically incapable of such an act. <laughs> but. So coincidentally, um, Yui Bowles, uh, the subject of our next four films that we're going to watch only Yui Bowl films for the next four series. Isn't that right, Lowry? Isn't that what you're basically hinting at? So this is going to be my suicide note, this particular <laughs> episode. Um. Because I would, I would sooner uh, stand out in front of traffic than subject myself to four Yui Bowl films in a row, much less four different seasons of them. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not what we're yes. gonna do. Um, so no, no. But let's 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 get back on track with Jennifer's body for a second. He, we're we're giving far too much time to a man who does not deserve it. Um, so. <laughs> For those of you who have not seen the the picture before, let me paint a uh, description for you of what to expect from this movie. Jennifer is our titular character here. She is a popular lady at her local high school, and um, she is best friends with the high school nerd. And we know that she's a high school nerd because she wears glasses. And as all high school movies have taught us, if you wear glasses... You are you are nerd. nerdy, right? That is the the absolute requirement. Basically, taking a, like a, a stunningly beautiful girl. It's and, the she's all that principle. The, she's all that principle, right? Yes, yes. Stunningly beautiful girl. Put some glasses on her, and then obviously she's this. She becomes this homely, mm. like future spinster. Yes, the the character. You know, in in a movie filled with uh, devil worship and demon possession. The thing that most stretches incredulity here is that Amanda <laughs> Seyfried is somehow not attractive because you put uh, put glasses on her. Nevertheless, they are childhood best friends, and their friendship has managed to uh, you know, get through the the years of high school where they might otherwise have have been torn apart by having different social groups that they were a part of. And instead, they're still best friends. And it's in that capacity that they decide to go to a, lo a local rock show with one another at, um, I can't call it a club, but at a, a local bar. Melody Lane. Melody Lane. Uh, a place that almost, to, to go back to one of our previous films, it kind of looks like the same set they used for the bar scene in Near Dark, but they just have a, a set for the band to play on. I think it was, I thought it was much more cheerful than the bar from Near Dark, which is, you know, a little bit more dingy. Uh, it was not, not a glitzy venue. No, no. But they see this, this band play there. And while they're watching the band play, the entire place erupts into flames and everyone has to scatter to make it out safely. And uh, very few people do. Uh, they make it out safely. The the two leads in the film, uh, Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried, make it out safely. Uh, Jennifer and Needy in the film. And so do all the members of the emo band that they went to go see. And the emo band manages to uh, get Jennifer to go into their van with them. 
and they drive off with her and leave Needy on her own. And uh, we don't really know for the longest time in this movie what happens to Jennifer while she is in the possession of these these band members. Uh, presumably she has to listen to a lot of songs that don't have choruses in them. But whatever the case may be, when she reappears, uh, maybe a day later, two days later, she seems to be a much different person. She shows up at Needy's house and she is clearly in distress. She is puking up a, uh, a noxious bile that appears to be alive. And we're left to believe that she's just not the same person, that something in her has changed. And um, not long after this, we come to realize that she is probably possessed by something because she is now actively trying to kill her classmates. She is luring boys into clandestine locations so that she can eat them um, for purposes that we aren't quite sure of yet. And the rest of the film follows uh, Jennifer and Needy as Needy tries to figure out what's going on and what has happened to her best friend and then is put in the awful position of having to make a choice about how she is going to try to save her best friend from this horrible fate that appears to have um, overtaken her. But then we, you know, the tables sort of turn once it, it becomes clear that to needy that Jennifer is killing the boys and it then begins to present a real danger mm. to needy's love interest, her boyfriend Chip. Now, there are hints over the course of the film that Jennifer suggests that she's interested in Chip. And I think those are sort of dismissed by Needy because their relationship as a friendship seems to revolve around the idea that Jennifer is the beautiful friend and the attra you know, the desirable friend, the girl who could have any boy she wants. She does not have glasses. She does not wear glasses, correct. And that uh, Needy's character uh, is sort of has her boyfriend by default and that or almost that she has Chip because Jennifer allows it to be so. Because if Jennifer decided that she wanted Chip, of course, he would be, a you know, is beneath her station. Right. But he would be a moth to the flame, basically. And I think that once Needy discovers, you know, the nature of jennifer's ailment and realizes that her boyfriend is in peril she needs to stop jennifer from uh committing these acts of violence and ultimately does right i think that we missed we missed the fact that in the the film actually begins where it ends which is oh, that's true i did not mention the the bookends of this right so the film is bookended at the start and at the at the end with Needy's character is actually the first character we meet who is committed into a mental institution. We don't really know much about her. Other than that, she is a violent inmate in this mental institution. And then the climax of the film, um, arguably there's actually two climaxes in the film, right? One is this sort of showdown between Needy and Jennifer as Jennifer is uh, taking a bite out of, Needy's boyfriend Chip in a derelict swimming pool. And then the second climax is the point at which um, Needy is um, 
following the tips provided to her in the occult section of the library, which yeah, is sort I, of weird. I think we'll talk about that yeah, in, yeah, uh, as a Most story point. We will. Yeah, we're going to go down all of the things that are sort of <laughs> weird about the story. But in, this, in, in it, Needy discovers that the demon is weakened most when it is hungry mm. and that a blade to the heart will vanquish the demon and release the soul of the victim. And so the film, the second climax of the film is a physical fight between Needy and Jennifer, where Needy plunges a box cutter into Jennifer's chest, thereby kills her. Which also, and, by the way, is a little odd to me. Uh, the, the, the choice of a box cutter, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, yeah, but the, uh, the choice of a box cutter to me seemed like an interesting tool here because we do see uh, other characters using knives, which would be kind of the... the normal instrument for for a stabbing in a movie like this right but when it comes time for needy to do the deed as it were to jennifer and and kill her it's not a knife that we get it's a box cutter which is a fairly unusual instrument to just you know yeah i don't, uh, really, don't really imagine using a box cutter to plunge into a, a box right it has like mm. an edge edge to it but not necessarily a point like a stabbing point no, no. I mean, I, I have a box cutter at my house. I'm, well, I think I could probably cut someone with it. I don't know that I could stab them hard enough to get down to their heart, heart right. and stab them through the heart with it. And then, uh, so when Needy is sort of straddling Jennifer's body, having plunged this box cutter into her heart and she dies, Jennifer's mother appears in the room and sees her daughter with her best friend straddling her and doesn't really realize immediately what has happened, but then quickly discovers that her daughter has been stabbed. And, and, and of she, course she has no idea that her daughter has been uh, afflicted with being possessed by a demon spirit, which has been forcing her to kill all, all these other people sure. in town. Right to her. It's just a matter of, I walked in and my daughter's best friend has inexplicably decided to murder her. Right. But in fairness, we also don't know that. We also don't, when I, my point is that when Jennifer's mother comes into the room and Needy sort of rolls off of her on the bed, there is this moment where Needy looks over at Jennifer's body laying on the bed and it, then she turns away and she looks up at the ceiling towards the camera. There is this moment where I think to myself that the inner monologue of, that Needy's sort of inner monologue might actually be a moment of doubt to say, holy shit. Is this real? Have like, I just have imagined I, it right, somehow? Exactly. And now the point is now. So, and then the movie bookends with needy back in the mental institution, having been in being placed in solitary confinement. Now, obviously, and there was this moment for me where, like, I wondered, was this whole thing of Jennifer being possessed and being a demon and being killing these boys, was it a figment? of Needy's imagination or her descent into madness that ultimately leads her into the mental institution. Like, is she actually crazy and killed her best friend and not, is that how it pays? I, I mean, I, I don't think that I think, I mean, I, it, it would be an interesting story point if that was the case, but I don't think we're given enough evidence to believe that. And the, no, and then we're immediately disabused about that. Right, once right. we return to the mental institution. Right. But I mean, even before then, right? I mean, the the, uh, the other deaths that are happening around Jennifer and Needy uh, 
are things that can't simply be explained away as, as no. visions or, or hallucinations on her part. Well, I mean, yes, but I'm saying that I'm, I agree with you because the people in the school are acknowledging that it's happening. It's part of the news. I, I get it. Yeah. But there is a moment where you think to yourself, is this maybe a, a new heart kind of thing? Mm. Like, is the whole thing a fever dream? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and, but ultimately we're disab. I mean, I had that moment when I was watching the movie in that sort of split second where I thought, you know, the way that Jennifer's mother kind of, we've never, we've never seen before. We don't know this character. We only know Jennifer as this sort of stunningly beautiful sex pot, luring boys to their death and killing them. But here we're in her bedroom and his mother character comes in who we've never seen before. And the way she like cradles her in her arms and like lift, tries, starts to lift her off the bed like a baby, she looks like a victim, right? In the, for the first moment, like we see Jennifer as a victim. Um, and I had this little split second where I thought, huh, how's this all gonna play out? Like maybe Needy is just nuts. And then we are disabused of that when we go back to the mental institution where Needy is in solitary confinement and levitates off the ground, having been bitten by Jennifer and retains some of her demonic skills and powers. And then she escapes from the mental institution, like kicks through the window and jumps to freedom. So we know, obviously, this was not a figment of Needy's imagination, but I did kind of enjoy that split second of doubt where I wondered, I wonder if I would have been disappointed if that's how it really was, if it was all a fever dream. Uh, I don't know. I think that they would have had to shoot some of the rest of the film in a, a way that would have provided them. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, the ability to go back and say, you should have seen this coming. You know, if you had if you had been paying attention, we dropped little hints along the right. way, that sort of thing. But that's, that I don't think that was um, that wasn't the kind of point this film, I think, was trying to make. You know, like that that sort of movie is trying to get at. Uh, at least in my view, uh, a, a different, larger discussion about mental illness sure. and how the the real evil is inside you, and you know, can you even trust yourself? And I don't know that that's really what this movie was trying to get at. I mean, I think this movie is doing a couple of things, right? I mean, in in some ways, this movie to me is a lot about um, sort of mocking the the evil of high school itself and, and how people tend to turn against each other mm. in high school and who you are can suddenly change. Your lifelong friends can be sort of cast aside very callously because you're trying to uh, fit in somehow, you know, so that, that sort of harshness of, um, of high school and this idea of high school as hell, I think is, is part of, what we're getting at there, but I also think there are a lot of very interesting, uh, allegorical moments here for the, the treatment of LGBTQ individuals and how they, um, sort of come to their own sexual awakenings in middle school and high school. You know, when you look at the, the relationship between Jennifer and needy, um, I mean, they, they make it very clear that there are uh, some same-sex attractions that are going on there and that they are struggling with. And it seems to me that maybe, you know, having uh, Jennifer 
possessed by a literal demon is in some ways trying to uh, get at the the way that a lot of conservatives and parents and and other religious figures might look at the idea of their their children suddenly having these these homosexual urges um, and and trying to put a a quite literal demonic face on that and and sort of drive it through to its most absurd conclusions. I know that Diablo Cody, who wrote the screenplay, and this was her follow-up for Juno, mm-hmm. um, had talked about sort of this Jennifer's story being somewhat of an allegory for pub- for female puberty and like the things that happen to a girl when she becomes mature and her body changes and what that ha- what that does to friendships and relationships and you know as a father of girls like i think that there is something to that in the sense that you know there's a, an inflection point when your when my daughters were little girls and you know not mature and like the the act of pl- like playing like being playful like it changes like there's a point at which like my daughters became mature and said oh I don't want to I don't want to I'm going to play in this way or I want to pl- I'm going to play in that way and I mean rather than you know like r- when you're when they're little you kind of roughhouse and play rough like you do with the boy with my son and my little one turned eleven and she was just like so I don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is this insecurity that's built into a female maturation that I don't understand, right? Like I, as a man, I don't, I don't grapple with that at all. And uh, we were talking, I was reading this article um, and Code, Diablo Cody was talking about sort of the horrors of uh, puberty and uh, Diablo Cody said, There's a scene where Jennifer is sitting alone smearing makeup on her face. And I always thought that was such a sad image. She's so vulnerable. I don't know any woman who hasn't had a moment sitting in front of a mirror and thinking, help me, I want to be somebody else. What makes it extra affecting is that Megan Fox is beautiful, is stunning. But to think about this idea that like Jennifer knows she's a monster, that she's become a monster. Now in in this case, she's become a monster because she was like sacrificed on an altar. Uh, and the sin that has cre- created this demonic possession is the fact that she is sexually, quote unquote, unpure, impure, because she's not a virgin. If she had been a sacrificed virgin, she would not have become this monster. But she's looking at herself in the mirror and seeing her as this monster, particularly when she is, quote unquote, empty, not as in not full, having not consumed men. Right. Right. And she's smearing the makeup on her face to sort of cover up like what she looks like when she is empty, which is she feels weak and she feels exhausted and she's physically drained. And it's not unlike having a period, right? Mm -hmm. A girl has her period once a month and it's exhausting and training and it's physically uncomfortable. And, and especially when you're, when a young girl has her period for the first time, like it's a big change in your life. Like you've become this you know, not a monster, but like it affects you. If it affects your emotions, it affects you physically. And 
I think that that that's sort of part of the allegory as well. Like you know, where Jennifer is saying, like I'm a totally sees herself as a totally different person, and outwardly, when she's interacting with Needy and when she's interacting with the boys, she is embracing this sort of monstrosity that she is, right? She wants to lure them and she's hungry for that. But when she's in that scene in her room alone and looking at herself in the mirror, like she doesn't see herself that way. Like she's trying to cover her face, cover herself up. Well, and I think that this doesn't necessarily just have to be about something as specific as uh, a period either. You know, I think this can be about the, the, the many emotional changes that happen to a person during this time in their lives where the things that used to matter to you don't matter quite as much and new things that have never never mattered to you before start to matter i mean this is um this is a, a very strange sort of take on a coming of age story right and um and in a weird way uh, jennifer actually becomes more confident. I mean, and she actually, she says this at one point, right? That she feels more confident and she feels more, um, more herself in some ways when she's committing these acts than she ever has before. Uh, she's figuring out more about who she is in a strange way. And, and we see that same kind of confidence take on, uh, needy's character later when she's, after she's bitten, she possesses a new kind of, uh, self-assurance that she lacked before. So, you know, it's as if by allowing this, this darkness into you on some level that you, the, the trade-off is even though you can't go back to that innocence that you had, you do become more of the, the confident adult more complete version of yourself that you'll be for the rest of your life. Um, and maybe we don't all need to be, you know, sacrificed to Satan for that to happen um, right. on the, the rocky shore of a, uh, a waterfall. But um, I, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot to be said here for all of this is a sort of, you know, allegory or a metaphor standing in for what it's like to go through that period in your life where you're still trying to figure out who you are and you exist in this liminal space between being a child and being an adult and no one is exactly taking you seriously. And yet at the same time, uh, the, the ramifications of the decisions that you're making suddenly hold a lot more weight than they ever have in your life before. And I was thinking as you were saying that about the sort of maybe the uniqueness of this movie when a sense that sort of limit, like you were describing the liminal space between being a child and being an adult, like that coming of age idea as it relates to men and boys is a much more broadly sort of widely just automatically understood journey i think maybe because of representation maybe because of sort of like the the ubiquity of that story because most of the storytellers and most of the writers are writing from the perspective of having lived that lived through that period of finding of you know 
becoming a bo- from a boy to a man. And a lot of it, uh, I think, I mean, everybody is different, I'm sure, but I think that a lot of it comes to, uh, you know, the things that we grapple with are, you know, are masculine. It's like the developing sense of masculinity and, you know, this desire, this hope to be sort of, you know, have beef, have physical prowess and have sexual prowess and meet a mate and have girls in, you know, react to you positively. And I think that there are some, there are obviously parallels between boys and girls, but I think that this, this film does something that a lot that most films don't do, which is strictly follow, like, like speak to the, that process as it affects, um, women and girls uh that we're not generally accustomed accustomed to well and i mean i think of all of the kind of coming of age stories that i've seen in films over my lifetime you know things like um stand by me those kinds of movies and i feel like there are tons of them where you have a a small group of young men who you're kind of watching go through this transformative period in their lives where they're making memories and, and having experiences that are going to, you know, be the sort of jumping off point to them becoming adults. We have very few that seriously consider the, the ramifications of that for women. And I think this film actually does a pretty sophisticated job of trying to look at and deconstruct the difficulty of that, that space for women. Um, and there aren't many other places I think you can look at in Hollywood and turn to for that sort of thing. I mean, we're, we're starting to get some, um, you know, some additional ones. Um, uh, Lady Bird is a, a really great film that I think does a, a beautiful job of that. But, um, you know, Big Mouth, I thought, did a really nice job of including a, a female character and trying to treat the process of puberty for a woman in the same ways that it was treating puberty for a man and, right. and show you that there were um, also, you know, complexities happening there as well. And it wasn't just a male driven narrative. Right. And not just, not just the, it was complexities, but one of the things about big mouth specifically is that, you know, to illustrate the distinctions, the differences, mm-hmm. but also many of the similarities. And I think there's this idea, this sort of notion that like men are from Mars and women are from Venus and we're like different species in a sense. And one of the things that I think that Big Mouth did is speak to the ways in which the hormone monster is applies to ev- to all of us, right? Like, and even, you know, LGBTQ uh, youth and men straight men and straight women and all i mean that there is a component of similarity that that runs through as well as the distinctions i think big mouth does that i mean i'm sure that we might be overlooking or overstating necessarily that like there is that this coming of age story of for women is sort of absent i certainly agree with you i think though that um when in many films where we do experience this sort of coming of age for w- women and girls, it usually is in concert or alongside men and boys. And oftentimes the female characters are ornament ornamental yeah. to that, where the primary storyline is driven by the sort of the coming of age of boy into man. And the girl is there sort of as a passenger 
and we for that journey that here. Right? Yeah, very like, much I mean, so. Um, I mean, because that happens here. I mean, certainly there is a component of that with Needy's boyfriend, Chip, right? Where he is, you know, of all the, I, I think in all the, bo- the the victims, the boys, right? The point at which Jennifer kills them or attacks them is at a massive point of vulnerability in different ways, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think that she kills this football jock who has lost his friend who's died in the fire. And so this is, here's a, a young man who is, you know, at the top of the social heap in high school, right? Where people look up to him and maybe girls want to sleep with him or whatever that, that looks like. But he, here he is grappling with grief. And the antidote to that grief is a sexual encounter with a beautiful girl. Right, and she capitalizes upon that weakness, that vulnerability, by luring him into the woods under the promise of a sexual interlude, um, to to help him cope with this sense of grief and loss that we all eventually learn that we have to grapple with at some point in our lives. Some of us have to learn that younger than other people, and then the second victim that we see is sort of this outsider character maybe a less popular goth kid, or he's more of like a green day pop punk kind of character. He he very much looks like he's dressing as Billy Joe Armstrong. Billy Joe Armstrong very much. Right. So then, and she is, and there's a degree of insecurity there, which is here's this. So here's Jennifer, who's this beautiful girl, this stunning girl. What the fuck does she want to do with me? Like what is happening? And this is also, you know, I think this is one of those places where the movie really gets to play around with these these tropes of horror, right? Like, I mean, when when the goth student is going to meet Jennifer and, it, and he goes to her, what she says anyway is her house. Right. But she texted him the address. And he goes there to meet her. I mean, every possible red flag that right. could humanly exist that tells him, for the love of God, just turn back. Right, like the know. house is like practically boarded up. And, right. Or it is boarded up and derelict and yeah. deserted. I, I mean, you know, there, yeah, there are no windows to the house and there are like mice and rats and stuff running around in there. I mean, it, it looks like someone began building the house and they stopped in the middle and just left and walked away. Um, you know, it's one of those classic moments in a horror movie to me where you're watching the character do something and you're, you're forced to question how could you possibly make the choice you're making right now? You know, like any, any other human being when, you know, you hear these blood curdling screams coming from your basement, why would you say to yourself, I'll go, I'll go check it out. I'll go check that out. And I'll, I'll not only do it, but I'll do it by myself with my trusty flashlight to help with me my out. box cutter. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I, yeah. uh, I, um, it's, it, it's true. And again, like the, what is the lure? Like mm-hmm. the lure is a sexual interlude with this beautiful girl. And that he is says to himself, well, I'm not, sh- I'm not going to get this chance again. Like what? And, and the truth is, is like in the, across the film, right? Like none of the, other than the band members or the people in the band that we learn ultimately have, sacrifice Jennifer to Satan, right? Mm. Um, the boys, the victim boys in this film are not, there's nothing to indicate that they're bad guys. Like they have not 
committed any crime other than being lured by Jennifer. Like they're not, it's not as if like they are these inherently villainous, hypersexualized boys that are being punished by Jennifer for the sin of being, ob of objectifying her. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not. Like it's true that they are lured by her, but they're not being punished by her for some act of some like character flaw or act of malfeasance. Mm -hmm. They're just dinner. Right. Well, and, and the film is sort of tipping this idea of the, the power dynamic on its head too. Right. I mean, a lot of times in your typical horror movie, a lot of the victims that we see will be these, you know, sort of scantily clad women that were, in various states of, of vulnerability or undress or what have you when they were set upon by the, the monster. And here we see it uh, turned around, you know, it's, it's these men who were boys who thought they were going to have a, a, you know, a sexually fun time with this woman, whatever the case may be. Um, but to your point, they're not, none of these men were openly depicted in the film as being, you know, sexist or chauvinistic or, um, or abusive in, in their attempts to, to gain that, that sexual gratification. If anything, yeah. actually, I think to the point, I think that they are in the moments when they are in being victimized by Jennifer, they are ex exhibiting vulnerabilities, like mm -hmm. dents in the armor of masculinity, right? In the sense that we have the jock who's grieving, we have the goth kid who is insecure about his social station, and then you have Chip, who's Needy's boyfriend, who is gripped with insecurity about his sexual prowess because he's having unsuccessful or not unsuccessful necessarily, but like those sort of introductory sexual fumblings when you're having your first experiences and you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And he's incredibly like insecure about that. And that is essentially like the state in which Jennifer places him by luring him. What she's doing is she's telling, she tells Chip that Needy has been cheating on him with the goth kid that she had killed and that the goth kid whose name, I can't remember now, um, and Needy's sexual exploits are far superior to anything that he's capable of doing. That they're doing things that are real varsity, quote unquote, varsity moves. Mm -hmm. And even the use of that language that's repeated in the film multiple times, JV and varsity, right? right? Like there's this idea of like childishness and then the sort of the big, the big boys kind of thing. And she's exploiting that that, that sexual insecurity or that sexual immaturity in him and, and exploiting that vulnerability and it, quite the opposite than compared to like other movies in this, in the slasher genre where like the guys who get killed are usually douchebags. Like if you look, I mean, think about Friday the 13th. Mm. Think about Nightmare on Elm Street. Like Johnny Depp's character is, he's innocent, but he is kind 
he's kind of a tool, right? Like he falls asleep when Nancy wants to, you know, she tells him she's afraid, begs him to stay awake and he falls asleep. And like she says, you dick. And mm -hmm. he gets killed. He did some dickish thing and he died. Um, in Friday the 13th, all of the boys who are killed are kind of douchebags in at, at Camp Crystal Lake. These characters that Jennifer kills are not. And in fact, the characters, the male characters in this film that are douchebags don't get killed by Jennifer. They get killed by Needy mm -hmm. at the end of the film, right? In the, in the post-credit sort of right. footage, we see that Needy has gone off and killed the band members. Right. And, and you know, I think that because we have a film that is both written and directed by women in this case, and it is explicitly about the, the female experience of going through this part of your life that it, it's not just going to change the gender of the victimology, but it's also going to play around with the idea of how victimhood itself actually operates. And, I think this is also getting to one of the reasons that the movie perhaps doesn't ultimately get the success it deserves because in a interview that the director did about the movie back in 2016, she explained that after the, the all male marketing team for this movie watched, I guess the rough cut of the film, one of their big ideas to, uh, get support behind the movie and to promote it was to have Megan Fox do live chats in amateur porn sites Jesus. to talk about the movie. And the director had to uh, you know, explain to them that that would be an awful idea and that it would horribly misrepresent the entire message of the film um, and what she was, was going for. But it also sort of explains just how badly misinformed and how, how truly uh, skewed the expectations are for what a woman's role in these kinds of films is going to be, right? I mean, what they did was they looked at these alluring pictures on the, the posters and, um, you know, the... the uh, ways that they were sexualizing her in their own minds, either in the film and the ways that, you know, she dresses in these, um, you know, these sort of um, uh, girl becoming a woman kind of ways, you know, t-shirts, uh, bands and, and, and um, that sort of thing. And as she becomes more evil, as she becomes possessed by, you know, these, the, this demon, um, you know, she's using um, her her female wiles, presumably, to to lure these boys to their deaths. But they looked at that and thought the point of this movie is that she's she's this hypersexual character, and people are going to want to watch this because Megan Fox is a beautiful woman, and you're going to see her in these highly suggestive states. And hey, you know, she's going to kill some people, uh, and they equated the whole point of the movie to the sex and, and the point of the movie is not the sex. The point of the movie is the, as we've been talking about, you know, the, the, the things that come before and after the sex and what it represents and the, 
the vulnerability that surrounds these these moments of momentary release. Um, but I mean, it, it says a lot to me, I think, about just how how badly misunderstood female characters are in general, and certainly how badly misunderstood, I think not just the character is, but I think really also this speaks to how badly misunderstood Megan Fox as a human being was and as a, a an actor was, especially following the things that went on with her and Transformers and, and her relationship with the director there and um, how she was sort of made an outcast in Hollywood because she was you know, labeled as being difficult after that, that film franchise. You know, I, I wonder, I was thinking about this while you were talking about the marketing team and sort of the objectification of this sort of the hypersexualized nature of the marketing is that, you know, I think maybe one of the challenges is that here we have an, the, is that, listen, this is a story about this character who is a succubus, who is in, in, possessed by a succubus, who uses sexual charm to lure men to their death, portrayed by, you know, a woman who is in many ways the embodiment of physical attractiveness in sort of Western standards of beauty. So it's not a leap to suggest, because the problem here is that the film does things that are not that, that mm. we've talked about, all of these complexities, mm. but it also does show a sexualized portrayal of this character engaging in, 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 in actions that use sexual charm to lure men to their deaths, right? So... The problem is, is I think that the, not that the marketing, I think the marketing just ignores the thing that the movie is actually about. It's just the, sort of the low hanging fruit. Right. They took the easiest part right. of this movie and said, that's what we will, um, that's what we'll use to promote it. But, you know, when you, when you strip all of the, the nuance and the the context away from those scenes of sexual gratification they don't you're 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 portraying them as mean something that they actually don't and so even if you go see the movie thinking that you're getting this really you know sort of softcore pornographic right. film you're you're going to be deeply disappointed, disappointed right. by what you find because it doesn't do that it doesn't. And, um, even by the time you get to some of those more, for lack of a better phrase, gratuitous scenes, they, they aren't going to have the same impact on you because you're going to have been exposed to all of the, uh, the context surrounding them. So you understand what they're supposed to represent in the film. And so, you know, if, if you went to this movie because you thought you're going to see, uh, a beautiful woman in the form of Megan Fox in these, you know, states of undress and, right. and you were going to, to find some kind of 
sexual gratification out of that, I think that you're, you're also not going to get what you want out of it. And yet the people who it was actually made for and the, might not go the, see it. The audience that it is it's intended for isn't going to go see it exactly because it's being marketed as a sort of soft core. Right. It's good. It's being marketed to teen boys as though, hey, you know, we took right. your we took the the sexual fantasy of the moment and made her this hot teenage monster. Come see this movie. Right. When really the marketing should be, come see a movie that actually treats being a female in high school as the difficult hellish experience that it actually is. And, you know, uh, see some part of your own experience, perhaps represented on film that you rarely get the chance to see. Right. I agree. You're right. So let's, uh, let's talk for a moment here about how this film actually did. The split film had a budget of $16 million. Its opening weekend on September 20th, 2009 was $6,868,397. <sighs> it does eventually make some of its money back. Its U.S. gross was $16.2 million. Worldwide gross, $31.5 million. So it's not as if the film... Um, lost money it, it did eventually make its money back but it took a while for that to happen and of course it also became uh, sort of like family guy when they started making the dvds for it it became a bigger hit on dvd once people had the opportunity to uh, sort of get a better sense of what they were getting themselves into before they watched it and and the critical consensus sort of took a turn for the better uh for the movie so it, it's it's had a better secondary life, I would say, than it was originally going to be given credit for. But, you know, this is a movie that probably should have been a much bigger box office success than it was, simply based on the quality of the screenplay, the quality of the, the story and the acting. And unfortunately, it just it didn't it didn't happen for it. Yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, $16 million is a lot of money, but not to make a Hollywood picture in 2009. And I think about where did the money go, mm -hmm. right? The money went to CGI. Yeah, special effects. For went sure. to special effects. Um, it went to pay Amanda Siegfried. She was the bigger name, I mm -hmm. think, at the time. Well, I don't know. Did uh, I? When did Transformers come out? I was. Before. I think Transformers might have come out right before this, so it's it's debatable. But I mean, certainly they were both known quantities at the time. Look at her filmography. Now, I will say one of the one of the joys of this movie for me is that you get a lot of really cool little cameo appearances in here. From well, I'm actors. sorry to interrupt you. She was actually in. Um, Transformers came out '07. Okay, so she would have been Correct. a known quantity by the yes. time this movie comes yeah, out. Yeah, so so it would have been where did the money go? Went to CGI, went to cast, yeah. went to the to the two stars in the cast, and I mean, maybe they could have cut corners and spent less money, but it seems that any like like it's a horror movie with beautiful people. Mm. It seems just a, a question of really bad marketing. You yeah. have not broken even on yeah. opening weekend. 
Yeah, I mean, this there's for a sixteen million dollar movie. There's there's really no excuse to me for this movie not having done better. It's it's certainly not the fault of the actors. It's not the fault of the writing. It's not the fault of the directing. Um, this is this is a, a drop of the ball on the part of the studio, right? And I will say, like you know, I I you know. I think that the, the writing in here is not that dissimilar or not too big of a departure from Juno, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like Diablo Cody has this sort of like whip smart, smart ass kind of writing and that's present here. And I think that if you sort of sit back and you let sort of the dialogue wash over you a little bit, it does have a cheesiness to it, but sure. I think it fits the story and the time and the characters well. I also think that the performances are all quite good and um and i think that karen kasama did some really interesting things with camera language in the film that we even talked about a little bit while we were watching it you know using the camera in the hand and um some visual imagery that is i mean it almost was there was this one moment where you know they're decorating for the dance and there's this sort of splash of red paint on a sign and i immediately thought um, of Slumber Party Massacre and mm-hmm. sort of the use of color and the use of red. And um, so, I mean, I think that on execution, like there are no glaring flaws in this, in this movie. In fact, it's probably one of the best put together movies that we've watched. Yeah. And even, you know, I would say that a lot of the movies we watched up to this point for me tend to fall apart in the third act you know, they, they do a good enough setup. They get me relatively invested in what's going on, but either they run out of money or they, they just don't have a very satisfying way to tie up the story they're trying to tell. And that doesn't happen in this film. I think this is actually a pretty satisfying ending to this movie, uh, especially with the, the little um, kiss of the, the post credits sequence that they do with the band members, uh, this is a, this is a fairly satisfying film to me, you know, and it gives you a, an amount of closure that I think would be satisfying to most audiences. But again, you know, it just, it's, it's not presented to the audience that they're trying to get to go see it in a way that would make them feel connected enough to it, to want to take the time to go watch it. Um, I, I, if you were a teenage girl, looking for a film that spoke to you. I can't imagine watching the marketing for this film and saying to yourself, Oh, I think that film is supposed to be for me. Right. You know, that I just, I can't imagine you doing that. Um, and to your point, I do agree that some of the, the, the little language bits that are in Diablo Cody's films definitely come out here. Diablo Cody to me has this this habit of trying to um, kind of create catchphrase sort of dialogue mm-hmm. at certain points in the film. And there are moments in this movie when I'm watching it where I can hear the characters saying something that I I feel certain that when Diablo Cody was writing it, she was saying to herself, oh, this is going to be the thing that people are saying from this movie. This is going to be the line that gets repeated all the time. And, you know, I don't know that any one of those particular phrases really stood out to me as being incredibly effective in in that way in this movie. But as a whole, I mean, this is a very well-written movie. It It's 
a very tightly written film. Um, and you know, even though some of the lines might not have necessarily worked for me, um, I mean, this is also kind of a dark comedy, right? And so some of the, the cheesiness and the, the ridiculousness of a, a certain bits of the dialogue I can forgive as being, um, a consequence of the kind of movie that they're trying to make. But having said that, um, you know, I think this was, uh, this was a good movie that just unfortunately got overlooked. And I hope that some of our listeners will decide to go give it a chance after listening to this. Um, hopefully maybe they've seen it before they watched this because, or listened to this because it occurs to me that, man, if you had not watched one of these movies and you listened to these podcasts, Oh, we are just like a spoiler fucking factory for well, these movies. Well, listen, I mean, the movie came out in 2009, All <laughs> right. I mean, I'm not going to lose too much sleep. Like, if we decide to do a podcast about Citizen Kane or The Usual Suspects or something like that, maybe we should be very clear that spoilers are ahead. But, I mean... I don't know. I think if you haven't seen Citizen Kane by now, I mean... <laughs> You know what my big, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go off on a, on a limb here. I'm going to tell you, uh, there's a bit of a tangent. Mm-hmm. Do you know how I discovered what the secret was in, in Citizen Kane? Was it the Simpsons? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> on the back. Oh, by the way, spoiler ahead. If you haven't seen Citizen Kane mm. on the back of the VHS box of Citizen Kane is a picture of the fucking sled. <laughs> I mean, who came up with that marketing plan? <laughs> I mean, you look at the box and you're like, Citizen Kane, this is supposed to be a classic. And you turn it over and you're like, Rosebud, huh, what's that? And then you turn on the movie and in the first five minutes, you're like, shit. <laughs> you, thanks a lot. Basically pointless. Don't even bother watching it. <laughs> thanks a lot, VHS box art right. creators. Bo- ridiculous. <laughs> That and also, like, I watched, uh, I saw the end of Usual Suspects before I saw the rest of the movie. Oh, that's unfortunate. It was very unfortunate. Although, you know, I don't know now, this is getting off on a completely different area, and I know this has been going on for a while, so I don't want to belabor it too long, but that's one of those movies that I loved growing up, and I haven't watched it since everything came out about Kevin Spacey, and I don't know... I don't know if I've got it in me to watch it now and if I could see it the same way, given everything that, that we now know. And, you know, the same thing for movies like Seven and, and American Beauty. I think so American forth. Beauty is probably the, they'll be the hardest to swallow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, of all of, of all of those. Although the, there is, you know, the, the fact that he blows his fucking brains out in American Beauty. So then that's a benefit. Well, his brains are blown out for him even better <laughs> um again god damn it spoilers we <laughs> someone Listen. got to the end of this someone got to the end of this podcast and they were like well it's a good thing i'm gonna go and watch all these classic movies after oh my god why <laughs> why why do you keep doing this i've never listened to this podcast again <laughs> i mean we only have like 15 listeners or something so right I, right, you know, right i don't want to lose any of you no 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 no, no. i mean yeah, we could we could barely fill a car with our listeners right now. Um, depending <laughs> so, on the size of the car, I guess. So we need to have a conversation about our staff picks yes. for this week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So would you like to go first or shall I? You go first. All right. So uh, as per usual, my staff pick has zero to do with this film in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. Uh, they The two are not connected by any thematic uh, pieces, really. Um, uh, maybe a few 
I suppose. Now, as I'm, as I'm saying that, I'm making myself a liar. It's Dog Day Afternoon, 1975, directed by Sidney LeMay, as Al Pacino, uh, John Cazale, and um, just one of my favorite films. I really love this this movie. Um, it's it's kind of one of those uh, films that takes place almost entirely in one location. You right. know, kind of stuck in the bank the entire time. But uh, a, a small group of bank robbers decide that they're going to make this heist, and that you know this will be a, a quick in and out sort of way for them to uh, make some easy money without really any intention of doing real harm to the people that they're robbing, you know, they, they're as, as robbers go, as criminals are concerned, these are pretty white hat people who happen to be choosing to do this. However, uh, a series of, of events occur that, that make the robbery much more convoluted and, and difficult than it needed to be. Uh, and we kind of get stuck in a hostage crisis situation as a result. And I would argue this is, I don't know if it's maybe, some might not say it was one of his best performances per se, but it's certainly one of my favorite performances from Al Pacino. And maybe that's because we get to see Al Pacino in a slightly more vulnerable um, position than he's usually in. You know, the, the character he's playing here is a slightly more, um, sort of caring, empathetic, compassionate kind of character than we typically see from an, an Al Pacino performance. Um, but certainly one of my favorite movies. You know, I think Dog Day Afternoon is um, a great movie to watch, particularly to see uh, Al Pacino and John Cazale together, um, having lost John Cazale in 1978 uh, to lung cancer at the age of 42. I mean, this is a guy who... You know, Al Pacino credits with teaching him how to be an actor. And we have a very short list of films where we can see him, right? I mean, we see him in... I think every film he was in won Best Picture, did it not? Or uh, was nominated for Best Picture? There's some, there's some statistic along those lines. That is I'm accurate, because he was in The Godfather, The Conversation. The Deer Hunter, I think? Yeah, well, he was in The Godfather, The Conversation, uh, Godfather 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter, yeah. uh, which was released after his death. Right. His last film was The Deer Hunter. He did, apparently, he was portrayed in Godfather Part 3, but using archival footage that was from the previous um, films. But yeah, I mean, and I think that you know, because of the short duration of his career, which really only spanned, Godfather came out in 1972. Uh, John Cazale died in 1978. I mean, it's a, it was a it was certainly a loss uh, to not see to not be able to see where he was going to go and what he was going to do. Um, and when you hear Al Pacino talk about John, I think that um, you don't want to miss out on that. And I think Dog Day Afternoon is just a fantastic, you know, it's like a master class. The two of them together is just was great. And yeah. I loved him, the deer hunter too, but Dog Day Afternoon would be sort of a classic. I mean, other than the Godfather as Fredo. Sure. sure. So what you got? my pick actually is connected to this film because one of the things that bothers me the most about Jennifer's body is the reception mm -hmm. that it received. Um, based upon its uh, its box office compared to its budget. So the predecessor to Jennifer's Body, which was released in 2007, 
had a budget of between six and a half and eight million dollars and made a whopping 231 million dollars in the box office and that was jason reitman's film written by diablo cody starring uh elliot ellen ellen page at the time elliot page now uh juno mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and i mean juno i so i saw juno in theaters i did not see Jennifer's body in theaters. This was actually the first time I ever watched Jennifer's body. Was See, today. you contributed to that $234 million. I, I know, I know. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember Juno. Now, granted, it, I don't think I've seen Juno since I saw it in theaters back then. But I do remember uh, being impressed by the the dialogue in particular and the the relationship building between the characters in the, that movie um, and, and this sort of, um, very unusual, very strong take on, you know, teenage pregnancy and, and how you deal with that, that sort of, um, uh, difficult decision-making at that time in your life and has some of the same characters in it, you know, I mean, um, <clears throat> JK Simmons also in that big fan of JK. Um, um, I think there are a couple of other, uh, members uh, you know, smaller people, smaller roles in this movie that were also in Juno as well. Um, so she used some of the same actors. She was kind of building her own sort of, you know, uh, troupe of actors that were right. going to continue to be, you in know, and I think in the, in the case of Juno, I mean, Elliot page, this was his first, I think one of his first roles. Um, I could be mistaken about that. No, it's it was in first, X Men: The Last Stand before that, and a couple of a couple wasn't of he films. in Hard Candy before this too? He was. Yeah, Hard okay. Candy. Yeah, Hard Candy five. also a very good film. You should see that. I've never seen that. It's um, uh, it's a disturbing film, but it's a very good film. I do like he's disturbing good in it. movies. So the um, the film, I mean, in Juno, like there's an ensemble of really really strong actors, right? Jennifer Garner, Jason Bateman, Allison Janney, J.K. Simmons, and they hold together as an ensemble and really allow sort of the quirkiness of Michael Sarah's character and Elliot Page's character really to shine. And I think it was a, it's smart. I just think it's a, it's a, it's a well-written, funny, like whip smart, smart assy writing that Diablo Cody's known for. And it's, this was just a really successful movie and it was really fun to watch. Yeah. If anything, you know, uh, watching Juno, even though it's been a long time since I did it and now watching Jennifer's body, it makes me, um, interested to see what other kinds of projects that Diablo Cody will be involved in. And, you know, hopefully we haven't seen uh, sort of the last of her as a, um, as a major writer in Hollywood, but I think this is also a good time to talk about what you can look forward to next time right here on the JNL podcast. And we will be this time, uh, next time, I should say, looking at a film from 2014 called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, directed and written by Anna Lily Amapour. Uh, the film is about a, te- a female vampire <clears throat> who takes up residence in an Iranian town and um, how the residents of that town end up dealing with the presence of this this vampire in their midst. But, you know, it should be a really uh, fascinating film. One of the first films, I think, that we will have used in the podcast, in the entirety of the podcast, that has a, um, a foreign, um, you know, cast to it that, that was not made in America, um, 
and and is going to uh, take place in uh, a country other than America. I don't know that we've done any that have taken place outside of the well, U.S. The film was actually shot in the U.S. Oh, okay. I did not realize yeah, that. Okay. It was mm. shot in, uh, in Taft, California okay. um, over the course of 24 days. But um, set in Iran. Correct. It's set in an Iranian town. Um, it's really exciting. You know, I really, I'm, I'm happy that we've done this series of, you know, films, horror films directed by women. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for, you know, future series like this where we Mm -hmm. can identify, you know, films that fit into a box that most people haven't looked inside and discover something really enjoyable. Um, and you know, if that, if that translates into somebody who happens to listen to our conversations about these movies, into them sort of sitting down and turning on the TV or going to the cinema and watching one of these films and enjoying it the way we are, then this is all, this is all worth it. Absolutely. And Hey, you know, if we could sell a couple of mugs along the way somewhere, (laughs) get um, some merch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, who doesn't need a koozie? Everybody loves koozies, right? A koozie with Lowry Woodall's face on it. Oh God, no, no, no. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it'll keep your, it will keep your cans as cold as my heart. Cold and flat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just even keel. Can a can a can of Coke have a flat affect? I don't I don't know. Hmm. I guess we'll all have to find out. This soda is effervescent. <laughs> effervescent. My my heart is definitely the new Coke flavor. Like you want the old Coke, you but the- all you're getting is the new Coke. <laughs> delicious and and with that bit of product placement we bring you to the end of yet another episode tell them goodbye james goodbye james exactly <laughs> <laughs>